Since 1996, when he became an intern at Magnum's London office, Jonas Bendixson worked for editorial clients such as National Geographic, Vanity Fair, Red Bull or Land Rover. He also produced some amazing projects, including documenting the second coming of Jesus or photographing the center of fake news with its fake history in his fake book. He also won many awards, including Best Photography Book, ICP's Infinity Award or WordPress Photo Award. Jonas is a documentary photographer, photojournalist and member of legendary Magnum Photos. And I have been lucky enough to get his time to talk about his photography process of planning, shooting and editing his projects, as well as his experience what it's like to be a documentary photographer and much more. I hope you're gonna enjoy this interview as much as I did. Thank you for listening and watching. Before we start, I have to mention the wonderful course Jonas leads at Magnum Learn. I enjoyed it a lot. Hello, Jonas. Thank you very much for coming to my podcast. My pleasure. <laughs> okay. Uh, what do you think most people get wrong when it comes to documentary photography? Well, uh, oh, it's... Uh hard to generalize you know um well i mean i think probably it, it depends who you're talking to i mean i i think people mix up these terms a lot as well i mean people are kind of generally confused about what is you know, documentary photography what is photojournalism uh and you know to what extent is either one a sort of direct conveyor of truth or not, you know, um, uh, you know, these definitions are, are, are slightly different depending on who you ask. Uh, uh, documentary photography can be a hundred different things, but I mean, I think some people at least are still under the impression that, you know, um, uh, because a photograph shows something thereby it's, it's, uh, true you know, on a very sort of one-to-one -one basis, uh, which is, of course, the truth is <laughs> far more complicated than that. Uh, so that's one thing that probably, uh, at least, I, I don't know if most people, but a lot of people often get confused. Okay. And what, what did you, what did you think about, you know, documentary photography before you started? Because I found your story like pretty fascinating um you have earned an internship in magnum after a uh, one year college in bristol right and you said it gave you just what you needed maybe more than uh what you would get uh studying photography at school right uh what was that that you learned during that uh internship oh no I, I, so many things i mean i think um uh... Part of it was, uh, you know, one of the jobs the interns had back in the day, we're, we're talking about 1990, what, uh, 96 to 97? Okay. I think, uh, something like that. Um, so, you know, we're talking about uh, pre-digital era, you know. Um, that was actually the year I quite uh, clearly remember it when Magnum Photos got their first email address. It was like mag mail at Magnum Photos. And that was, you know, nobody used it for anything because nobody knew what it was for. Uh, but uh, so we're talking really pre-digital. And this was in an era where we still had a 
a physical archive, you know, so, you know, uh, the library, the archive was uh, staffed by researchers who would, you know, if the Sunday Times magazine called up and then did a picture of uh, Gandhi, um, you know, the, the researcher would go into physical cardboard boxes, you know, India, yellow, personalities, 07. It was a color code. And they would pick out five prints of Gandhi and send them off and, you know, uh, the, the picture editor at the magazine would look at them, maybe keep one, send four back. Uh, and uh, one of my jobs was to put the prints back into the box, you know, back into the archive. So it meant that in the year I spent doing that, um, I learned the entire archive by heart. You know, all this, all these really iconic work from so many photographers all around the world, uh, really, um, I, I sort of got to know it intimately, all of it. And, um, you know, I think that in itself was a huge lesson, all the different ways of telling a story with photographs, all the different ways to explore an issue with photographs, you know, and, and some are very sort of journalistic in nature, others were very much sort of interpretive and exploratory and, uh, and very loose in form. So, some of it was in color, some was in black and white. So it was really like a an introduction to the breadth of various ways of working. Uh, at the same time, you know, so there was that. Um, there was also just that, you know, I mean, I was making coffee, I was making tea, I was running to the post office, I was answering the phone saying hello, my photos. Um, but mainly, I think I could be a spy. You know, I, I, I okay. was basically a spy in the office for a year. And you know, I could eavesdrop on everyone i could uh listen to the photographers how did they talk about their projects like i could listen to the team members the staff in magnum how they were negotiating with clients uh how were those conversations i could get a sense of what clients wanted when they called magnum what were they looking for how did what what were their needs so it was sort of by osmosis i learned all these things about the, the industry about the business and also sort of got just a huge inspirational boost from seeing all these photographers go out there into society, use photography in different ways to explore questions they had about the world and and uh, got a sense that this is possible to do. So so I, I think there was a sort of hands-on nature to it that I don't think you you get in, in most uh, colleges or something like that. Okay. Um, and now looking back with the experience you have now, uh, what would be like a, one thing you would stop yourself from doing, you know, if you had to start again with documentary photography or with photography overall? I truly really believe that the mistakes you make are really valuable. I mean, I always say you learn 10 times more from the mistakes you made than the successes you had. You know, so I mean, I, I believe, and that goes not to, not just in photography, but in all, all works in life. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be without the mistakes I've made. I've done a lot of stupid things. Some of them have somehow turned into good things after a while. So I don't know. I, I, I'm I not of the sort of composition in my mind. I, I go around regretting things, uh, rethinking things. Things have, uh, you know, worked out for me in the end um, uh, beyond my wildest expectations in a way so to put like that i mean i don't know you know i i uh things kind of became serious for me very early 
you know, I mean, uh, I became a father at the age of 23 or 24 or something like that. So I've always had that sort of, um, even as I was trying to establish myself and sort of make, uh, figure out who I was as a photographer, it was juggling that with small kids from, from the, the start. Um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, in some ways that was of course the stress factor, but, uh, you know, that also resolved a lot of things. It made me make very clear decisions very early on. I always say that's probably one of the reasons that saved me is that I had to have that framework. So I couldn't, I couldn't spend all this time doing whatever I wanted. And, and I had to be quite sort of focused and use my time wisely. You know, normally I would say, you know, it's great to have all this time to experiment and find yourself and, and not have other factors like that. But for me, it probably was a decisive factor in, in sort of, uh, finding a course, you know, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not someone who looks back that much like that, you know, so I'm okay. probably the wrong person <laughs> to have great wisdom out of that. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Um, millions or maybe billions of photos are being published every day right and as a very successful photographer what do you think is that separates photos and photographers that can get traction and attention from the ones that can't you know i i i've, I've always thought a lot about this question because i've, I've sort of I feel bothered by it in the sense that uh as you say, you know, there's every single day. I mean, for, for every year, it's more, right? I mean, so yeah. even five years ago, you know, there was billions and billions. I don't do, I don't know the exact number anymore, but billions and billions of photographs being uploaded into every channel. Uh, this mountain of photographs is, is growing at sort of absurd rates every single day. And, you know, the thing... The thing is, a lot of these pictures are, they look like that thing that traditionally people have called good photographs. Okay. You know, they, they, I mean, they look, they're, they're well composed, the color is nice, the light is nice, the, the action is right. I mean, like, they really look like that thing people normally call good photographs. You know, are they good photographs? I have no idea. You know, I have... What the, what is the criteria for a good photograph? I don't know, but they look like that thing that traditionally has been called that. Uh, so what what is our role? You know, add add twenty more good photographs to the pile of you know billions and billions of fairly competently done photographs. I mean, when I look at my Instagram feed, they're all kind of good, right? I mean, like even from people who don't work with photography, making good photographs have become quite, quite easy. <clears throat> so what do we do with that? How do you stay relevant? How do you have any meaning as a photographer today? So, I, I mean, like I've always thought of this as you see millions and millions of good photographs being uploaded every day. But with, what you don't see is millions of millions of Presentations of strong ideas. Mm -hmm. You don't see millions and millions of good storytelling, examples of good storytelling. So, is it, is it because of the nature of the social networks <clears throat> or the channels where people publish those? 
because Instagram seems to favor maybe more strong single images rather than um, I would say series or you know stories. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's of course part of the equation. It's the nature of the the social channels. Uh, <clears throat> but even beyond that, I think. I mean, beyond that, sort of in, in the millions of websites, in the millions of portfolios, in the millions of online magazines. I mean, like there, there's, you know, there's many other forms as well where also things are generally boring. <laughs> you know, uh, they are meaningless. They are, they look nice, but it's, it doesn't make you question anything. It doesn't make me feel anything. It doesn't make me curious about anything. And that's because it's generally like not presenting interesting ideas. It's not, it's not um, uh, presenting interesting questions. It's not uh, challenging me. So, I mean, I, I've always thought that forget about competing in the arena of good photographs. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not specifically interested in good photographs. I'm interested in the idea. So, so like, I, I don't want to compete even in the uh, arena of photographs i'm gonna compete in the arena of ideas of questions of storytelling that's when i feel like i have a role to play because that's kind of something that i'm i think i'm i'm half decent at and i have <clears throat> something to share you know there's no point for me just to take good pictures and and, and add to the mountain so we can say when it comes to content against design you much more prefer you know the strong idea behind the photograph rather than you know having it nicely composed lit and everything like that right yeah i mean i, th I think form is a big part of photography of course you know i'm in a composition and form and it's all important stuff but that i think i think uh without any idea behind it without any <clears throat> If it's if it's only about that, then then it's sort of like uh, you know, it probably doesn't cross the threshold of interesting me. Um, so yeah, I I'm generally interested in when there is when the photographer is sharing something with me, making me like consider an idea or consider a question or making me. I mean, it can be also just about emotion, but they they clearly want to share something beyond just the production of a decent looking photograph. I, I think that's where, where uh, for me, it's interesting. And the photography is, is, is making me, is sharing something with me that I would have missed. You know, I mean, that's the magic of photography. Okay. The photographer, man, share with someone else <clears throat> something that everyone else would have passed by. They wouldn't have considered it. They wouldn't have seen it. They wouldn't have observed it. That's when, when it's interesting. And uh, how to find the project in this world where everything seems to be, you know, d discovered and everyone with a phone is now, you know, can be uh, for a journalist or documentary photography, uh, photographer, because I know you have published many photography books uh, and projects uh, in magazines. And um, so I was wondering, where do you find inspiration for your, uh, for your work? Uh, reading? Reading newspapers, reading magazines, reading books, <clears throat> uh, being out there in the world, experiencing things. Uh, I think I'm, uh, where I don't get a lot of sort of specific inspiration is looking at a bunch of other photographers. Oh, okay. 
you know that that's not where it comes from for sure you know it comes from other sources you also said you have uh, those periods of time when you you don't look at photography at all right and then you have those periods when when you do so i was uh wondering when you do look at photography books and photography projects of others what is it that you're looking for is it like uh inspiration or ideas or techniques or uh, styles no i mean I, you know i i'm a like uh, many others i'm a sort of fragile uh on a creative level my creative inspiration my creative flow is a fragile one <clears throat> and uh I go through big ups and downs. So if I feel confident or I feel good about myself or I feel, you know, like I I, uh, I have any worth. So it means that when I am casting about for ideas, when I'm trying to figure out new projects, when I'm trying to flesh out a new set of ideas, that's when I don't look at other photography. Because, you know, then you just get the sense that like everything's been done Everyone has done everything so brilliantly. Everyone is so talented. <clears throat> where where am I gonna find anything to say in all of this? Everything's already there, you know. So that's when I don't look at it. Uh, if I'm feeling strong, I'm feeling like I'm uh, I'm in the flow. That's maybe when I will look at other work. I I can get inspired looking at other work when i'm feeling confident when i maybe have my own process going with something then it's fun to look at other work but i'm not looking at other work to sort of say oh let's see how that's done or that's done i'm I'm sort of like looking at it for the joy of of, of taking part in other people's vision and in in coming along on the journey that someone has put me on or you know doing you know just seeing it as sort of like the recipient of a good story someone's good storytelling or you know letting myself be whisked away and challenged by a set of ideas you know that that's that's the joy of that and 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 you know i can really enjoy that when i'm uh you know in sort of too fragile a position <laughs> okay you said that uh Personal projects drive everything else, and you always try to have at least uh, one personal project, right? How do you keep pushing your personal project when there is nothing that would force you, you know, to 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 do it, to go forward? Like no editor, no one waiting for the picture. Yeah, but I'm, you know, it's not like nothing is pushing me just because I'm editors. You know, it's it's about my own feeling of. having some meaning to doing all of this so yeah i generally never have been waiting around for editors to give me a job or you know a lot of my projects come out of things i'm curious about interested in and I'm, i try to nurture that kind of it's that that forms the basis of so much of what i do you know and 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 uh <clears throat> in a way the biggest challenge is to nurture that feeling of curiosity that feeling of <clears throat> that that's the foundation of everything i do i mean like i take them my last project the uh, the book of ellis um you know it, when i was sitting there is uh, starting with that work it, it's it's not like it's not like 
any editor could ever have told me this is the recipe for what you're going to be doing in the next two, three years. And this is going to be, you know, something that is going to be a defining work for you, you know, sit around, make a bunch of computer game characters and, and yeah. bears and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's not like any editor could ever have told me that and put me on the track. And I, and I would actually listen to the guy and say, Oh, wow, that's a great idea. I would probably like if somebody external came and said something like that to me, I would, you know, you know, walk away, you know, because I, it, it would sound so ridiculous. It's just because uh, it so happened that, you know, this was a set of things that grew as curiosities and fascinations in me. It became overwhelming, so I had to go and do something with it. But nobody could ever have told me to do that. And and. <laughs> No, uh, if they had, I would probably have rejected it and it would not have become a project. So it's kind of like that feeling like, I mean, it's also when you've done this for some years, you know, I'm a freelance photographer for what, 23 years or something. It's kind of like after a while you, you gain a trust that when you are really feeling it, you should really go for it. Okay. What, what also made me personally feel a little more at ease was when I found that you are not one of those twenty-four-seven uh, uh, photographers who eat, sleep, and uh, you know, with camera. Uh, is it something you have eventually came to, or did you always have it like this? Uh good question. Um, I think uh, no. I think I slowly sort of understood that after a while, and I was probably close to burning out at one point because I I thought sort of like I was maybe in a in a sort of hamster wheel. Uh, uh, on the other hand, I've always had a family, you know, while I've I've been doing photography. So like like I said, from early age, uh, so I've always had stuff that has forced me to be. Uh, doing something else than photography, and that's maybe the beauty of you know children, etc. Is that they won't let you do photography 24/7. You know, but yeah. <laughs> even even the other time you, you I have outside of family stuff, I don't spend it on photography 24/7. You know, I have so many other things I would rather spend my time doing. Often, you know, and uh, and other passions and other you know strange projects and um and um. And 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 these are completely critical things to to keeping that sense of joy, creativity, sort of any creative spark. Uh, doing these other things that give me another outlet for those things, it, in the end of the day, feeds photography because it makes me feel like I'm not just sort of stuck in a, a system where I just have to churn out stuff all the time and the only purpose of it all is keeping the machinery going you know it's mm. kind of I need I need that sense of like <clears throat> childish joy at making stuff or yeah. you know exploring stuff or learning stuff that has nothing to do with anything you do with the camera it's super important uh, I think probably it's something that a lot of Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. For for my kind of personality, it's, it's completely critical. Okay. So I I never have like a, a a point where I I don't know what to do with myself. Like I don't never have enough hours in the day to get through half of the stuff I I would like to be fiddling with. You know, I'm always fiddling with a lot of stuff. I always have a lot of strange projects. 
that uh, nobody ever sees. It's not something that I'm, you know, part of my, uh, you know, th- things I publish or even photography. But uh, without that, I think I would sort of just like wither away. When when it comes to your uh, photography projects, I was actually quite surprised um, when when you said that being out in the field uh, after all the planning you have done. So the the actual act of taking photographs is almost like a small detail, just one part of important thing, right? So how does your project usually look like from getting the idea to the final product? Well, it's sort of just like, you know, the timelines are often very long. <clears throat> If we're talking about personal work, then it's all the months thinking about something, wondering, is this a good idea? Could it be done like this? You know, it, it, I feel like that's a, a big part of the project, trying to figure out why I'm interested in it. Uh, should I be doing it, etc. And, and then when you actually go with, out in the field, you know, you go a week here, a week there. <clears throat> that time goes very quickly. And then you're stuck with, uh, you know, a lot of time afterwards uh, trying to edit this material, try to figure out what's the nature of this material, how does it go together, and then it's figuring out how to get it out in the world. Publishers, editors, magazines, uh, exhibitions, all these things are things with long <laughs> timelines and a lot of back and forth. So that's what I mean, that, the act, you know, the actual clicking of the button in the field it is... So percentage-wise, a very small part of what we do. It's it's sort of like uh, so much about <clears throat> thinking and and conceiving ideas. Uh, of course, it's different if you have uh, you know you have a different setup as a photographer. Some people work in uh, let's say a newspaper and and they're being sent out every single day to take pictures and personal work they do. They fit into the cracks of of that infrastructure and. Then, then of course, being out there photographing is something they do every single day, uh, all the time, uh, and that's the routine. That that is the rhythm of it. But for me, it's not quite like that. Yeah, I, I, uh, it goes very much in ebbs and flows. If I'm actually out there photographing or not. So, so uh, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it, it's a strange thing. I mean, sometimes I feel very strange uh, how little percentage of my time I'm actually out there <laughs> with a camera taking pictures. Okay. <laughs> And uh, when when you are in the field, um, what is your photography process? Because I have found you are not uh, really a fan of this fly-on-the-wall invisible style photographer, right? And you rather get the access and show your camera, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I like photography that makes you feel like you're, like the photographer is a fly on the wall. I like photography that makes you, makes me feel like my feet are on the ground in that situation. I'm experiencing through the eyes of the photographer. I'm getting to know the people in, in the pictures. I, I like photography that sort of does that, but um, I never be in, you know, you know, you hear this all the, lots of the old big legends, they would say stuff like, 
got into a community, they went to a situation and they didn't even take the camera out of their bag for the first uh, week. They were just meeting the people, talking to them, and then slowly okay. after two weeks, they would take out their camera and start photographing. <laughs> you know, that's very foreign to me. Uh, I, uh, To me, it's not even productive, you know, because then people are, what the hell is this guy doing here? Like, well, why is he here hanging around, chatting to us day and day, like, well, day after day? Well, I would rather much, much rather show up. Uh, the camera is there. Everyone understands that I'm there. As a photographer, it's very clear. Um, I will be uh, starting to take pictures almost immediately, even if I'm never going to use those pictures. To kind of get used to photographing that situation, let people get used to me being there. And then uh, things will become very natural after a while. They'll get bored with you being there as a photographer, etc. gives everyone some clarity. Uh, but... Yeah, you can say from my projects that they're not necessarily... I mean, they are... <clears throat> well, some some of my work is very much sort of observed work. You know, hanging around, just letting things unfold. Other things I do are much more... My, my, my level of intervention in the situation is bigger. You know. Uh, so, so it depends a little bit. When do you know... Um... When the, when the project is finished, right? I mean, how many times do you eventually come back until uh, you know you're done? Oh, uh, when do you know when something is finished? Um, you know, it, for me, it's a, uh, entirely... A, I mean, it can be a gut-level thing. You just feel... I've, I've done... I've said everything I have to say here. You know, I'm, I, I, I don't have much more to add. Even if I spent more time, I probably wouldn't get further into it. Uh, or, I mean, it can be as simple as you run out of money or you run out of time or or something like that. I mean, it depends from project to project. I mean, also, sometimes you have deadlines, sometimes you have a specific... It's important to get this work out there because it's current, it's relevant right now, and, and you know, you, you could spend five more years doing it, but but the, the purpose of it is... For it to be out there in the world, uh, speaking to people, uh, the work uh, needs to be connecting with people yeah, and, and uh, get in front of people's eyes. So it depends on the project, but in general, I feel like I kind of know. I just know that when that balance, those things balances out, and it's time to to put a punctuation mark. Um, it's it's uh, maybe something you gain from experience. You you know that. You sort of reach the conclusion of your argument somehow. When you finish your field work, um, how do you find what is the best part of the project and how you want to structure it? Um, is that something you realize while taking the photographs or is it born during the edit? Oh, it depends. It is it, a mixture. I mean, sometimes you know you just got some frame that that's going to be important. Okay. You... You, yeah, I mean, you can feel that. You knew that even when we were photographing with film, you know. I mean, you don't need the screen on the back of the camera to, to know that. Sometimes you just know things lined up, you nailed it. <laughs> I mean, I remember that very clearly from the film days. And and usually it it, it was true. But there, there's always tons of other stuff that you don't 
necessarily realize is is gold uh, until you see it on on the contact sheet or in 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 the Lightroom catalog or whatever. Um, and there, that's where the surprises are. And sometimes the things you thought were totally magical when you caught them, yeah, it's a good one, but maybe it can be outcompeted with the 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 the, the stuff that that's more unexpected. Because usually the things that you think are the hundred percent right things, they may be a little bit predictable. They're a little bit too obvious, and. Um, it's often the, the other things around the side of a situation or things that pop up uh, that you didn't quite expect and, and, and maybe you photograph it, maybe not quite the, the way you would have preconceived it, maybe holds more power. Uh, but it's a mixture always. Uh, it's a mixture. Um, and uh, yeah, you gain that from experience as well. You know, you feel underway that wow, I really got into the right kind of situation and this happened and I'm sure I got something out of this situation. Um, you know. but, uh, but the editing is the difficult part uh, and it takes a long time often. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, that, that is one of the strange things about photography is that you know, the, the exact same raw material can go in such vastly different directions. And it's really in the editing you decide who you are as a photographer and, and what this project is and, and where it's headed and and what's the feeling of it, what's the nature of it. I mean, <clears throat> the same raw material can can be result in two completely unrecognizable projects. Uh, so that's really that it's, it, it's in... <clears throat> so much of it for me is in the dialogue between the pictures. It's not like, here's a great picture, here's a great picture. But it's really like, how does one lead to the next? How, how, I, I very rarely, by the way, think in, in terms of single images. I very rarely think in terms of, wow, I captured a, an amazing photograph. I, I and almost always think in terms of bodies of work and projects. What do these this set of pictures oh, okay. do that's really almost all my work is kind of based on on bodies of work so it's really in the in the relationship between the pictures that that, that stuff gets interesting and do you have some sort of system how to get from let's say 10,000 photos to your final 50 yeah i have a system for that because that's a horrible awful monstrous task often <laughs> and it's what everyone struggles with is how do you how do you i mean editing whenever i teach photography or whenever i'm talking to young photographers that's always where they uh, think everyone thinks taking pictures is a wonderful time it's a uh, good fun and you meet people and it's great and it's it's the horrible slogging uh, work of editing which which bothers people uh, but it's so important so yes I have a very specific ways to do that and and um, <clears throat> they're almost like mechanical I mean I when I have 10,000 pictures uh, I do a first pass and that first pass I I sort of have the, the, the idea. I'm, I'm picking out everything that I think you can use for this project or any other project anytime in the future. Anything that's not garbage, basically. Okay. 
Uh, and when I would go through that first pile and I take that, it's usually for some magical reason, uh, always around 25% of the work. I don't know why, but it. Do you delete what you. No, no, no. I never delete anything. Ne never delete anything because you never know what you need in the future. But, but once I've taken that uh, 25%, so we're down to two and a half thousand. Okay. To get further from there, I, I sort of go through it one round after one round after one round, and I, I basically cut them in half. So I, I don't have to take the big decisions until I get down to a, long, a lower number. I get to condense these situations into sort of the best five, six images by constantly having the pile, you know? So you don't, I think the problem is like, when you have too many images, you, the weight of picking out the good ones gets so difficult because you, you ha don't have the overview. So I just go from two and a half thousand to 1250, 1250 to, was that uh, 625, 625 to 312. <laughs> and once you get to 150, thereabouts, that, then you can start picking out the good things. And, and you, you, it's so much easier you can see all the pictures together almost um and uh and you also then have a smaller part so that if you change your mind you know where to find the second best one um yeah so i, I just go sort of very mechanically and force myself through these piles round by round and then i keep that structure of the a b c d e edit down in my catalog so that I can always go up a level and see if I missed something or maybe I, I was wrong. But I, I know exactly what the different stages. And do you move the whole scenes within uh, what, what you like uh, or do you just take one, uh, one photo you liked? Or, or if you have, for example, four photos of, of the same scene, do you move like the whole scene to the next round and then you eventually decide when you no, pick no, no. those? No, 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 that, that's what I mean, that's what I mean. So ah, okay. there were, in that two and a half thousand, there would be one scene, there was one situation, I took a hundred pictures. Ah, okay. So that, in that round, that scene became 50 pictures. Ah, the next okay, round, okay, that okay. scene was 25. And you go down so that in the final uh, 150, that scene, you have the four best ones from that scene. Kind of thing. Ah, okay, okay. You see what I mean? So, so that that in the final uh, 150, you can pick out the one best ones of those four shortlisted ones. And you also said yeah. you like to you like to print the picture and look at uh, look at it uh, in the mirror, right? So, so to get <clears throat> some some fresh perspective. That's very interesting. That's if I'm really stuck. That that's only if I'm really stuck, and I've gone blind with pictures and I don't know, like if I really need that feeling of seeing a picture for the first time again to, to sort of refresh the, yeah, then I do the trick of holding it in the mirror, <laughs> a okay. print. And it's actually really effective. It's really amazing. But, uh, but that's like, if I'm re I, I, if you do that too much, that then, uh, then that doesn't work. So I, I only do that if I'm really stuck. I have four pictures of the same scene. I can't tell anymore what's good, what's bad. I can maybe try it like that. But it, 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 that's like a last, last resort. As a photographer with a big family, do you apply the same system of editing for 
family events or vacations because it sometimes happens to me uh, i just get get back from vacation with 4000 images right and that's not something that is presentable to anyone right you you can't just sit someone and say hey look at 4000 of my images do you edit uh, your your like family like projects we can say do you edit it down Oh, now you're talking about a sore spot. Uh, that's the difficult one. I, I mean, I I've always had this tradition. I've made like a, a end of year book of family photos. Ideally, it was finished by Christmas. It's like big blur book. It's like like this, like this book. Uh, you know, two hundred sixty pages just full of family photos that's like one of the things i like to do family photos you uh, took or is it like collaboration within the whole family whoever took a picture no of i the phone? do it's like a present i've given to the family but oh, okay but I, i i'm actually behind some years now i haven't uh you know and uh and, and it's been like a wild race at the end of the year to try to get it done because i'm not good at doing it while while i'm uh doing it little by little. So I usually have a huge pile of absolutely monstrous amounts of images to go through. <laughs> I, 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 when I do that, I, I don't do the uh, half and half and half. I somehow try to go more aggressively into it and just because there's so much material. Um, yeah, but uh, actually, I'm a little bit uh, late on that work. I, I, uh, I'm always trying to catch up, make two in one year and <laughs> So I have a, a hope to to uh, to uh, get up to date on that, but uh, no, I'm falling behind. Falling behind. <laughs> okay. Uh, the no. more you have, less time you have, and uh, the more subjects you have, so I that you can take more pictures, but you have less time to go through. That's the problem. Uh, now let me go back a little bit. So at the end of the um, of the Magnum internship, you received a grant for a photography project, right? And you chose to go to Birobijan with a plan to stay there for a whole year, and uh, you had to leave after 10 months uh, since uh, the FSB got a suspicion you were a spy, right? And wanted to deport you, uh, and then you published the project. Would you say that was it? That was what made you believe you can be a documentary photographer after you, you know, spent 10 months doing this project. Yeah, I mean, I think that was huge uh, wind in my sails. That was sort of the first big. I done this big project. It it uh, ended up uh, with uh, 10 pages in the Sunday Times magazine or 12 pages or something like that in London. So a big magazine and and uh, and yeah, it was this amazing for um, you know. 20 year old or whatever to to feel like wow you know so you know this kind of works uh i have something to say i i can you know people want to 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 see these photographs it works it can be published that was huge wind in the sales back then and i think really critical to make me feel like if you if you find good stories if you find interesting uh subjects then then 
there's a way to to make a living from it and and to to publish these things and have them seen and uh, get the pictures in front of people um so yeah that was that was huge <laughs> yeah and then you got back to russia and actually end up being banned right which was sort of start of um satellites project uh exploring the post-soviet uh history right and uh so i have i have this photograph which is probably one of your most well-known images, right? Could you tell me mm. uh, what are we looking at? How you ended up taking this photo? Yeah, so that that is a part of this uh, amazing, I mean, it was an amazing story in itself about people who live under the rocket trajectories of, 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 of space launches from Baikonur, the main Russian space launch site, where... You know, the rocket travels up in these big fuel booster stages, fall off. And, and, and it was about the people who lived in, in the areas where these things fall down. Uh, you know, people living in areas where they had space rockets come crashing down in, in the general area several times a month. Uh, so, so that image is, is basically of uh, two farmers, you know, who are picking off copper wire and picking apart a Soyuz uh uh launch vehicle uh and 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 this you know it's basically for scrap metal so these people who lived in these areas said that the the local scrap metal business was very big and and um because they, these rockets have very valuable metal in them so uh it was about um these people and that as an example of sort of the way society has been turned upside down after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, taking the space rocket, which was, of course, this very grand part of Soviet identity and propaganda and, and myths and storytelling. Uh, and it becomes this sort of backyard scrap metal dealing kind of capitalist <laughs> Uh, business somehow. Um, yeah, so in that picture, you know, I was photographing that and then suddenly there was a rain and a, a little squall of, of, of rain and, you know, you had this stormy sky, it was lit by sunlight and then thousands of white butterflies appeared making probably the most surreal scene you could imagine with space rockets, with with this shiny metal, with dark stormy skies and yeah, butterflies. So it was completely unbelievable scene. So you also said that you only ended up taking like a half of the role of the film when you actually approached the scene and uh, that this particular image was a part of a group of like four to five images and some of them were out of focus. And uh, how would you approach the scene like this if you would recognize the importance of the scene like this? How would you approach it today? I think that scene is very telling for, for the different eras of photography in a way. I mean, I back in those days, shooting on film, we were always saving the film, often shooting the first half very quickly and the last half a roll very slowly because you were... You know, you don't want to end up with a film change in the middle of an important scene or you were just generally saving film because it was so expensive. And, um, and, and and that scene was the same. But 
this this was also quite early in my career, so taken in the year two thousand. So I only had been a photographer for a very few years, and uh, and I think it's just that rawness that that. It was at the time in my life where everything I was experiencing for the first time. It was uh, everything was new, everything was raw, and I didn't necessarily understand at that time that this was that unusual a scene. I, I mean, I recognized this was cool and everything, but but like the idea that this was like a once in a lifetime scene. Everything was a once in a lifetime scene because I was doing it for the first time. Everything. So yeah, I mean that entire scene is half a roll of film. Uh, that specific perspective where it's kind of compressed and the butterflies become very big is i think it's three frames if yeah three or four frames <clears throat> and um yeah i think only one or two of them is halfway sharp so it's amazing that it worked i managed to capture it and it kind of was the right composition it was the best one it was like the right moment but <laughs> on the other hand even in the film days, you usually caught it anyways. I mean, I think now, of course, if I got to that scene now, I would blast out, uh, you know, memory card after memory card probably and, and, and uh, you know, be totally high from how wonderful the scene was. And I would, but, you know, would the pic- end picture be any better? I, I sort of doubt it. And, 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 of course, back then you were in this modus of conserving film and you didn't know if you caught it until the film was developed but still people generally caught the scenes anyway so it was more instinctive i'm very happy that i started photography with in that era and you had that ballast of it works even if you don't see the result immediately i mean now that we're we're in this kind of uh, flow where everything is instantly grown revealed i think it you know we we become lazier we become less you know the, the good news about that is that you 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 can afford to be more playful you can try things you can experiment more and there's a playfulness to that that certainly has a lot of value but i also think we become very lazy okay thank you and um now now moving forward in your project i would like to talk about about this book which yeah. um Documents lives of seven people who all <laughs> claim to be the biblical messiah uh, returned to earth. Uh, the last testament to truth shall set you free. And I think it could have also been called as the Jesus of Kitveses in one of his scriptures. Remember, God's way is totally different to our human expectations. And your projects almost always start with a question you have. What was the question you had before you started to work on Last Testament? Oh, I, I had so many questions. Um, <clears throat> what is it like to believe something? What is it like to believe in God? I didn't grow up with God myself, but always been very fascinated by religion and faith so what does the world look like if you look at it through those classes what does the universe look like what's our place in it uh what are the limits of what you can believe Uh, where is the boundary between faith and delusion uh who gets to decide what is what uh is there anything that any of these 
proclaimed messiahs here. Is there anything specific in their th- theology that should make it less plausible than anything that's being uh, presented in 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 mainstream religion in in houses of worship in churches and mosques and synagogues around the world and temples? Um, <laughs> is is there a profound difference between them, or is it just sort of like a uh, uh, you know, who has the power of definition to decide that this is <clears throat> this can be brushed away as 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 uh, craziness, and this has a place in society that we can applaud and and and, and should have a seat at the table. You know, it, it's these questions that I found very fascinating. And for each time I was out in the field with these people, I, I had uh, more of them. And how did you personally approach that? I mean, how did you figure out out of those thousands, I can imagine, cases of people who claim to be uh, this, you know, Messiah or second coming of Jesus? Uh, how did you find the right ones? No, I mean, it it, it wasn't. Um, there are, of course, uh, <clears throat> lots of spiritual leaders. There's uh, gurus, there's priests. Lots of those. There are thousands of prophets out there. There are uh, people claiming to be prophets. But people actually claiming to be the biblical Messiah, second coming, uh, I found there wasn't that many. Of course, if you go into any mental institution anywhere, you will find people who claim to be uh, Jesus. It's quite common uh, delusion in, in that sphere. But, you know, I had a few criteria. It had to be people who had had a historical record for this claim that they had lived a large part of their life with this identity of being uh, the second coming, that, you know, uh, these people produce scripture that that shows their theology and that the theology sort of has a, some sort of reasonable logic to it, or if not logic, it, it sort of hangs together somehow. Uh, and, and most of them are out there attracting followers, etc. So when you apply those filters, I actually didn't find so many more than the people in the book. I mean, I really, I mean, I, there was a few more that I uh, that I um, uh, had on my radar, but it wasn't, you know, you could count on two two hands the amount of people I could find that 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 fit the uh, description. So the last testament for me is a is a masterclass of packaging art, and it's kind of a recurring theme. Uh, for your books, because maybe with exception of satellites, uh, each book's design is somehow bind to the topic of your photographs, right? And is it something that is important for you, uh, I mean, to find the right presentation? Does it come to you before you do the project? Uh, it, it depends on the project a little bit and to varying degrees. <clears throat> something like um, the places we live, which was so much about a three-dimensional way of, of making photographs. It was about, you know, double gate poles. You know, places we live, you know, about um, people living in slums around the world. So, you know, it, it, it functions by these, um, you know, visiting these different families, seeing their entire home. It was an early concept of 360-degree photography, right? This entire house in one fold-out. Uh, that, of course, was conceived very much 
right from the start because I had to photograph a very specific way to make that conceit work. Other projects come more gradually. Yes, the last testament did. It was clear to me it was a book project. It was clear to me that <clears throat> somehow I had to reference the Bible when I made this book, but exactly how and what that would look like and what details were necessary to, to bring it to life. That came uh, after the fact. Uh, so so it, it depends on the project a little bit. But yes, I mean, I, I, I think the form follows function somehow. I mean, I, I listen, I'm not someone who thinks too much about exactly the style of photography or, or, or how my pictures look like that. I normally think that, uh you know once you figure out what you want to talk about and 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 what the, the essence of a project is and if you really want to tell that story you really want to explore that thing the form of the pictures come by themselves <clears throat> and um that's why my projects look a little bit different they have a little different character depending on the project but it's the same with the design of the books sort of like it's it, you don't do a lot of design for the sake of design that you do these things because they augment the idea you're presenting. But I mean, you, you had to have some sort of idea when you, when you did it, right? Because you collected all those scriptures and, um, that you later use in, in the final design with this, uh, Bible paper, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, I had the idea that I wanted to use these elements and it should be biblical in form, but the exact way these things work together inside the book, the sequence of them, the choice of papers, the choice of design, the uh, how you actually move through the book, those things weren't decided from the start. I mean, that's what I mean. So like, It's easy to say, I want this book to look like a Bible. That's easy to say, right? But how do you do that without making it look kind of like a pastiche, like uh, too ironical? How do you make it look like that? And you still, uh, you know, make it look believable, but also not overdone. You know, I think great design is kind of... Uh, to a large extent invisible because it feels very natural. So how do you do it without being it focused being on the design and and this kind of thing? So so those things, I mean, come after the fact. But yeah, I knew that all these different elements needed to be in it, but how do they work together is the question. Uh, okay. And then the general topic of <clears throat> Bible, right? It obviously has a big impact on billions of people. What sorts of impact do you want to have with your projects? And did making of this particular project uh, had some kind of impact on you? I mean, I, I do have an audience in mind when I make these projects. I mean, I'm, I'm a photographer who likes to... I mean, part of my motivation is because I want to share the questions I have with other people. Like, so I want to... I want to be part of some conversation, right? So, so I want there to be an audience. I want this to go out there and I want to, to, to spark debate maybe, and I want to spark conversation. 
So that's important. Uh, you know, where I probably didn't reach the amount of people that uh, the Bible <laughs> reached, uh, but uh, <laughs> but still, it it went uh, quite far and wide, and um, it sparked so many interesting conversations. And uh, so that for me is uh, you know the mark of success. But but uh, but how did it change me? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the last testament made me. Uh, more open in a way. I mean, I, I think before the last testament, I was uh, kind of very. Uh, <clears throat> I, I'm still not a believer of God. Okay, I, but but um, I think I was much more aggressive and hostile uh, uh, atheist before the project, and I was much less open to sort of the function that that belief has and and in a way some of the positive sides it has and and the project sort of let me see the world through the glasses of belief let me experience it with these different communities and there was a lot of beauty in it uh there was a lot of moving moments and and it made me much more sort of rounder and softer and 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 realized that you know maybe sometimes it's not so important if not so important to figure out is this guy the messiah or not you know maybe that's not the most important question here you know uh it's not the most interesting question uh you know people's lives are filled with belief and with meaning and with um a form and uh, you know it give, give gives a framework to people's lives and and there can be a lot of beauty and a lot of meaning uh, value in that. And and I, I sort of just became much uh, more open. Okay. Um, and how do you stay objective in those situations? And do you even want to stay objective? No, objectivity is not like uh, something that is uh, part of the agenda. I mean, in the last testament, I went in with, you know, I wanted to leave all kind of journalistic agendas behind uh, you know I, I wasn't there to ask any critical questions i wasn't there to try to figure out if this guy is messiah or not what i wanted to do in each chapter with each of the seven men is to go in there <clears throat> and take everything they told me as and everything they showed me as the whole and complete truth and rather try to with photography explore what does the world look like from that perspective you know, if this is the Messiah, what does the world look like? What does that feel like? What does it mean? That's not an objective uh, agenda per se. You know, I'm, I'm in some cases let myself be used by by uh, the Messiah to present very much like a, a world of their making. Uh, so in a way, that process was part of, of, of the way I wanted to explore this. Okay. And now let's talk about your latest book, the book of Valles. And then yeah. uh, the narrative of this book is that during the US presidential election in 2016, we witnessed this storm of fake news, right? And a lot of them actually came from this town, Valles, in Macedonia, from websites built by people trying to earn some money on Google Ads. And there are there's another layer of this story because there's actually a book of valleys discovered written on, on wooden boards documenting history of um, of the Uralist Slavs um, entering Europe. 
and <coughs> Velis being one of the Asian gods, which this whole thing also ended up being fake, right? And then the third layer is what you did with uh, with all this. So um, you went to Velis to document this story, uh, th- this place, and you decided to photograph the spaces and the center of fake news and created a fake book, right? Now, looking back at style of your uh, of publishing your projects, it actually makes perfect sense, right? The, the places we live, you show rooms and the paper falls, right? And uh, The Last Testament, the book that is basically version of Bible for art hotels, uh, is, a, is, is a Bible, right? Uh, and then now the book about fake news is a is a fake book. So I was wondering, how is it possible no one noticed that pattern? And then you, you said not even your colleagues in Magnum did, right? So uh, w- w- when you showed it to them, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, and this is a mystery for me too. <laughs> and... Uh... Yeah, listen, I was as surprised as everyone else that this went as far as it did. This little experiment of mine, uh, I thought it would be uncovered very quickly. Uh, in a way, it was part of the plan that it was supposed to be uncovered quite quickly. It's now public one year since it was published about, or it was published in April uh, 21. I thought within a few weeks, people would be chattering on social media with suspicions of what this was. Have you seen this latest book of Jonas? Isn't it strange? Isn't there something fishy going on? Is there something wrong here? Um, because I also had put in a lot of hints and tips in the book itself that something was wrong. Um, and the fact that it sort of just went and went without anyone asking any critical questions or everyone basically just giving me compliments and it wasn't expected outcome at all. Uh, so it went much further than I thought. And yeah, you know, of course, they, and that took on new, new events and new things happened in the project. So um, it wasn't, uh, I mean, I had to reveal myself in the end of the day that, that uh, this was a forgery. Ah, okay. And then um, some of the negative comments you received uh, claimed that you leveraged your history and your reputation, right? <laughs> And uh, I have two questions about it. Is it even worse because it proves that we can be blind when it comes to sources we already trust? And the second, did you think about pitching the project as a whole to a publisher as an unknown photographer, you know, to make it step further? Um, yeah. So people can say sort of, yeah, it works because Jonas is uh, someone we trust. He's a reputable source, you know, he's a credible source. So, of course, we didn't question anything he said. Uh, yeah, that is part of, that's exactly right. I mean, that's part of the mechanics of why this works, right? Uh, in addition to that, it was very much packaged in the language of photojournalism and uh, sort of credible photography. Um, but yes, uh, it, it worked because yes, in documentary photography, I am sort of a credible source, but this is how the world works. The problem is that we have this fragmentation of the media landscape where whatever you believe, 
you you have your credible sources. If you believe the Earth is flat, you know there are plenty of credible sources for that community that that uh, has lots of evidence for this and backs their points of view up or. You know, whatever the conspiracy theory or whatever your political point of view, you have credible sources. There are millions of credible sources out there, hundreds of millions of credible sources out there now. Uh, and, and we have this fragmentation of the media landscape where nobody agrees on what is evidence and nobody agrees on facts. We have alternative facts instead of facts. And, you know, a- anything you don't uh, agree with is fake news, et cetera, et cetera. So, Yes, that's a, a perfect illustration. Now, I, I think one of the pedagogical things about this is that I think people in the sort of media world that I inhabit and, and probably you inhabit uh, you know, has had a tendency to think that sort of falling for this kind of obvious fake news and, and manipulations, it's something that yeah, crazy conspiracy theory adherents do. Or you know people who 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 uh, vote for Trump and and uh, and support uh, the uh, uh, you know the um, uh, invasion of the of of the um, the capital in America oh, you know okay. like these people they they fall for these kind of things. We sophisticated media people we don't. You know, we we are too media literate to fall for that kind of thing. Now, this uh, shows that you know, as long as something is packaged uh, according to our biases, we are vulnerable to this too. You know, and uh, and I think th- this is um, this is very illustrative of 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 how this whole process works. So, so you didn't think uh, to to pitch the idea as an unknown photographer to you know try oh. the waters <laughs> if if someone would catch that and yeah. see okay. No, no, because you know that that was listen. It, <laughs> to put it like that, it's it's sort of like uh, <laughs> I didn't myself anticipate this going that far. I thought this would be a sort of subtle comment on on the issues we're facing around synthetic media. I, like I said, had put in all kinds of hints in it for it to be discovered. The idea was for the project to be discovered uh, quite quickly, within a month or so, and then I could participate in the debate about you know how it was constructed and and you know what the pitfalls of, of, of this uh, type of manipulation is. It, I had not conceived of the idea that it would go half a year. Then I myself would have to figure out a way to, 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 uh, to uh, reveal what the project is. It was not on my agenda to send this to Visa Poulemage in Papignan Festival, to, to have it flow through those filters and, and sort of make a whole scene and, and and then all this kind of crazy stuff that happened to this project it was not part of the original plan so no i i did not have that idea because i thought it was way sufficient for me <laughs> to make the uh, project and then soon enough you know people would debate what's what's wrong in this project and it would be kind of a treasure hunt i, I consider it as a it would be a treasure hunt to find out all the forgeries and everything that was wrong in it but i never thought that people wouldn't discover it at all. Okay. That that was the original idea. Okay. Perfect. 
thank you. So we are running out of time. Uh, I have one last question for you. Uh, one tip you would give someone who is maybe thinking about, you know, he or she becoming a documentary photographer or or photojournalist, and then maybe someone else is telling them that it's and it is very difficult nowadays to you know make a living with photography. Uh, what 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 advice would you give them? Yeah, no, it's a terrible idea. It's a terrible <laughs> idea. Uh, and it always was a terrible idea. It was a, always a terrible idea to become a documentary photographer. Not just now. Yeah, things are difficult now. On the other hand, some things are easier now. There's so many outlets out there to show your work. Uh, it's much more accepted that you you kind of cross various boundaries in terms of you can be both a documentary photographer and an artist and a journalist. And, you know, depending on the situation, you can produce different kinds of work. Uh, before, you know, it was either you had success convincing magazine editors to publish your work or not, or you were dead. It was a bad idea then and it's a bad idea now. Uh, but, uh, you know, some people insist on, on giving this a shot and, uh, some of them, a small percentage of them will succeed. Uh, and it's people who usually, you know, just hell bent on doing this and, uh, won't take no for an answer. And, uh, yeah, my, my advice would maybe be to be, listen, figure out what you're interested in and find a way to use photography to explore those things. Uh, that is when the work becomes powerful. That's when it becomes uh, yours, and that's when you you can put your own personal stamp on the work, and it, it sort of gets noticed. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you very much for taking your time. It was a pleasure to be able to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Martin. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for watching. You can also listen to this podcast in your favorite podcast application. If you like that, you can subscribe for more content or check the past interviews. Looking forward to see you around.